RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. Welcome into another edition of Rush the Field College Football Podcast alongside veteran coach, scout, and consultant Chris Landry. I'm Scott Seidenberg, and Chris, as spring practices evolve, spring games are on the horizon. Are you ready to put the pads on? I am. Uh, you know, I wish you could put them on a little bit longer. I'm absolutely looking forward to some more spring game action at a few last weekend, and we'll have even more the next couple of weekends. You know, I love watching the spring games because it, it gets me amped up for the upcoming college football season. You know, you, you, we talk about it all the time with early enrollees coming into school and so you have some highly touted freshmen that are already in school for this spring semester and then they get to participate in the spring game so you get a little glance of what's coming up next fall but also it's a time for position battles where they really begin let's say you got two quarterbacks going into this fall season and you don't know which one's going to start well you're going to pay a lot of attention to that red versus white game or blue versus gold whatever you're going to pay a lot of attention to that spring game yeah, I think so. I think that it has become, and with the advent of some of the television networks that uh, the own conference networks, they cover more of these games. And I think it's uh, it is some fun for it. Kind of wets the the whistle, so to speak, for for programs uh, for the fans to be able to see exactly what they have. And kind of, and you're right, it's about looking at an individual player or two or three. It's a, a unit group or, you know, how the passing game is going to develop or, you know, it's some part of your team that you may have some concerns about, maybe some youth, you want to see how it's coming along. What I always say, though, about these games is don't look at the result. And I don't mean the score, but yeah. don't look at the success of a certain aspect of your team and necess- or a failure and translate that to that's what's going to be in the fall because a lot of what you do is working on simplicity, very vanilla, to try to work on things to try to gauge as a coach where you need to do a lot of work. So in essence, you're trying to do things to learn more about your team and to expose the strengths and weaknesses so you know where to go from the end of spring to the remaining part of the offseason and you get ready for fall, uh, you know, summer camp, early fall camp, you know where to go then. So I think a lot of times people make snack judgments of, boy, we're really going to be good because I saw, you know, the backs just tear it up in the run game and in, in, in spring or what have you. So I always say, you know, let's under understand what we're seeing and that uh, it is uh, not necessarily – based upon how we're going to play in a game, but how we're trying to execute the basic fundamentals and the technique of each position in each of the offensive and defensive traits and special teams traits uh, as well. So what does a team lose by not having a spring game? And the reason why I bring that up is because Gary Patterson informed the media that TCU is not going to have a spring game this year because they don't have enough depth and they're dealing with injuries as well. They have, they're practicing with about half of the scholarship players that they have, which is nowhere near enough to fill two teams. Well, here's the thing. The teams, and, and they're not going to be the only one. It happens every year. Uh, they're teams that are going to cancel the spring game. But what they're going to have in lieu of that is scrimmages. To be honest with you, scrimmages are more valuable. A spring game, if you watch a lot of the spring games, they're really not a game. 
I mean, they, 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 their scrimmages disguised in a game, but what it is, um, is in scrimmage, you do just that. You scrimmage certain settings. All right, we really need to work a lot more on goal line or more on third and long or more on red zone or whatever the case may be. Well, in a game, in a regular game in the fall or a spring game, if it's a true game, well, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't, you don't get a chance to work on what you really want. So usually what you see in the spring game is just that scrimmages. It's kind of disguised. Well, maybe we'll have a kickoff, but we won't run it back. And, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit spring, you know, now in this case, they're just going to run more scrimmages and they're going to do things to protect their team because they don't want to increase the chances of the guys that they do have getting injured and putting them into further peril. But they're still going to get their work done. They're just going to do it in a different way, and they won't have the the fanfare that is. You know, it's it is popular mm-hmm. in TCU, but it's tougher to do, say, at Texas or Texas A and M. Those days are are big. I mean, some of those places draw 65, 70, 75,000 people and it's autograph day and all that. So to fully cancel it, some programs can't do it. TCU kind of can, can do that a little. It won't be as much of a hullabaloo for them not doing it, but they'll get their work done. But to answer your question, you'd like to do more work. It's hindered by the injuries and therefore you got to be smart about it. What I think is a good explanation for those people that, you know, are really looking for the difference between the two in a scrimmage like setting, you might not advance the ball because you're working on certain plays. So if you start at the 20 yard line and you say it's first day, you might make up a scenario. You might say, Hey, it's third and five from the 20 yard line. You Mm -hmm. run that play. And then guess what? You put the ball back on the 20 yard line and you say it's third and five and you run another play. Whereas Mm -hmm. in a game like setting, like a spring game, you're going to advance the ball like you would a traditional game. And you're going to work on every scenario live as it would play out during during a game as opposed to just resetting the ball wherever you want and making up the scenario as you go along. Like a scrimmage, you'll say, I want to work on second and short, or I want to work on third and long. In a spring game, you're going to say, hey, we just gained four yards on first down. Guess what? It's second and six. So that's right. a little and difference there. Exactly. And, and the reason that the scrimmages are more valuable, quite frankly, is that it gives you an opportunity to work on the things that you need to work on most. Whereas in the game, you just kind of held hostage to the flow of the game. And mm-hmm. if they they can't, you know, you can't be effective on certain things, you're going to want to work on it over and over again. And so based upon how your spring practices come through, you want to work on certain things at that point um, because the spring game slash spring scrimmage um, is the end of spring practice. So it is – an opportunity to work on the things that you feel is most needed that you kind of lose, which is why, you know, when we talk about it in the NFL, oftentimes about, well, you know, they may be a cut down preseason games. You know what? If they cut down preseason games. What you're going to see is more scrimmages. Mm-hmm. And I'm not mm-hmm. so sure that you won't get as much out of that. You got two teams scrimmage against one another. Uh, and you say, Hey, we're, we're going to mutually work to uh, agree to work on certain things. You can get a lot more done there. So again, scrimmages are just that you you script what you want to do, um, and whereas the game, like you said, it's you know who cares if the 
the red beats the white. It doesn't really tell you what you really need to know. And if you don't get to work on all the things that you want, that's why spring games, even the ones that are called spring games, really, if you look at them, and I look at a lot of them on tape after I get done with the draft, it's scrimmages disguised as games that they'll, oh, yeah, you know, the, the, you know, this team scored, you know, this and that, but it's, it's, it's points and all that, but it's, it's not, it's not the same thing. It's still more scrimmage like within a game concept. Well, come on, Chris. I got, I got Scarlet minus two over Gray in the Ohio State hey, game, you know? There you go. Yeah. I mean, hey, you got to have it. When you got that inside, when you got that script, yeah. you, there yeah. you go. You can I hear Justin Fields is going to be playing for the Scarlet team. I got to yeah, go. You got, you, you get, you, you get your, your uh, scouting community. Up in a tizzy with uh, with all that inside information. Uh, let's uh, talk about not a laughing matter, and that's what's going on at Georgia. Some more off-the-field incidents that Kirby Smart's going to have to deal with. Two players arrested for possession of marijuana, and this is just the latest, Chris, in, an, in a long line here of off-the-field issues for this Bulldogs program, and Kirby Smart cannot be satisfied with what's going on with his team. No, and listen, everybody has it to some degree. So it's not a Georgia problem. It's a problem of youth and being knuckleheads and being young, and we all know that. But you have an issue where you're in spring and you're in your off-season program and you've got now Robert Beal and Brendan Cox, the latest, but Tyler Simmons and Tyreek Stevenson and Jaden Hunter. you got five guys that have either been arrested or picked up um, that that really, without overreacting, you have to really look hard at, do you have the right leadership in your locker room? Are you setting the right example, upperclassmen? Um, is there a little bit of a gap there? Do you need to step in? Are these guys that have had problems that, you, you know, coming in when you recruited them? I think these are things you got to nip in the butt. Um, listen, College kids will be college kids. Yeah. And you're going to have some of that. But when you have it to where you're doing things that uh, you wonder if they're getting enough rest, if they're taking care of doing, focusing on the right things, this is the time where you need to do it. Because if you get in this situation where you get in the fall and the focus is not there, I think the little things, the loose ends start to become a problem. So when people say, oh, what is this? You know, this problem is, is it, is it, well, no, it is an opportunity to nip this in the bud and correct us. Um, if you don't, then it can fester and become a bigger problem. So I think it, it is a focus. And a lot of people have asked me, what is in the water in Athens, Georgia this <laughs> spring? Yeah, you know, and I, you know, there is just a little bit of a, Hey, five, six guys, you know, it happens to, and it, it's just a bad narrative too that kind of brings a negative, you know, because then now you have recruits and parents of recruits saying, well, what are they doing over there? I mean, they got kids getting arrested every weekend, you know, or are they, you know, can I trust my kid? You know, so there's a lot of reasons why you need to nip this in the bud, but it's not an indicator necessarily that that there's, there's a problem definitely, but it gives you an opportunity to fix the problem or if you don't, then it could be a further issue. It's no different than any problem. When we go to the doctor, if we fix it, take care of it, 
it's going to be better than if we don't take care of it, right? Exactly. Now, Chris, before we get into our state of the program on the Oklahoma Sooners, the NFL draft is fast approaching. And I wanted to talk about some of the under-the-radar prospects that you've been detailing on LandryFootball.com. And you do a great job of ranking these players and talking about what their strengths are and what their fits are. But everyone knows about the top guys. Everyone knows who's going to go within the top couple of picks. Will Quentin Williams go at three to the Jets, or will they get Josh Allen? That's the debate that's going on. Is Kyler Murray going to go number one? Well, if they're going to trade Josh Rosen, maybe that's where they're going to go. But who are some under-the-radar guys that, based off what you saw from them in college and what you see from them on film that we should be looking out for when the NFL draft comes around? Well, this is not a complete list because there are a lot of them, but these are just a few that I thought I'd mention. You know, Jay, Jay Sternberger, the tight end from Texas A&M, big guy, 6'4", 250, Scott, great hands. He's got a nice burst, really good run after catch skills. Um, he needs to get stronger, but he has the frame to do it. Um, and I think has a chance to be really, really good, and I think is going to be good value on the second day of the draft. Garrett Bradbury, the center from North Carolina State, a little bit of Corey Lindsay in him, a little bit of Jeff Saturday when Jeff Saturday came out of North Carolina. This guy can play. He's got really good quickness, very underrated for teams that are looking for good young centers. This guy can really play. Washington, state of Washington's got some interesting guys. University of Washington You've got a Caleb McCary, who's a tackle that reminds me a little bit of Andrew Whitworth coming up when he came out of LSU. This this McCary is a really good player. He's got a chance to be a good left tackle at the next uh, level. Um, another tackle in the same state, go down to Pullman and uh, up to Pullman to Andrew Dillard, the, the big tackle. Maybe the best offensive tackle in this draft. Maybe the first one off the board. Maybe ahead of Jonah Williams. We'll see. Lean, athletic, knee bend, probably got more upside than Jonah. Jonah's maybe a little bit more of a safer pick, but interesting guys there. couple of other players at Washington. Taylor Rapp is a safety that's got good short area quickness, doesn't have great deep speed, but I like his ability to cover slot and I like his physicality. I'm not so sure that the best corner in this draft may not be Byron Murphy. Yeah, now, we good point. Talk about, you know um, – LSU's got Grady Williams. Uh, you know, he's an outstanding corner. Um, Georgia's got a really good corner as well in DeAndre Baker. But I'm not so sure that Byron Murphy is not the best safety in this draft. He reminds me a little bit of Denzel Ward, uh, aggressive playmaker. So let's keep an eye out on him. Um, speaking of Georgia, love Riley Ridley. Calvin Ridley's little brother, uh-huh. thick, reliable possession receiver, really good hands. Going to be a better pro than he was in college. And then remember Daryl Henderson, he's a running back out of Memphis. He's got a little bit of Dalvin Cook in him. Going to be a player that's going to be taken um, maybe third round, maybe late second. Uh, good value anywhere in that spot. Uh, not real big, um, but can got really runs a little powerful and stronger than his size would indicate. Only about 208, but pretty well put together. Little short, which is fine for running backs. Good vision and good versatility. So those are some guys that I think um, you should keep an eye out on. And of course, at LandryFootball.com, we will have details in scouting reports on all these players as well as um, our draft boards. That's right. Be sure to check out LandryFootball.com for all that. Now let's get into our state of the program. What's going on at your favorite school? This 
is state of the program on Rush the Field. In today's program, Chris, the Oklahoma Sooners finished the year ranked fourth in the nation after a 12-2 season, which saw them have their quarterback win the Heisman Trophy for the second consecutive year. It went from Baker Mayfield to Kyler Murray, who upset Tua and won the award. A lot of people, I think, were unsure how the transition would go from Bob Stoops when he sort of announced his retirement surprisingly to hand the reins over to Lincoln Riley. This program hasn't skipped a beat, though. No, they haven't. In fact, from a recruiting standpoint, it's just a tick better, quite frankly. You know, you look at the best programs in the country. I don't think there's any doubt, and we'll get to in the next few weeks, talk about Clemson and Alabama. And, you know, we've talked about uh, Georgia. I think Georgia's kind of right there. You know, if you look at beyond those three, and I think you'd have to put those three at the top. I think you look at Ohio State and Oklahoma, and I think Ohio State talent-wise is right there. But Oklahoma certainly has been the last couple of seasons right there in the mix. Um, Maybe need to tinker a little bit with how they do things defensively. I think Alex Greenwich is a really good signing as defensive coordinator. And this is a program that's an elite program. It is all-time one of the five best. And certainly, if you look at the programs in the country today that are the best, I think they're in that mix. Maybe just off the the scale of national championship type because they haven't fared well against the elite level type team. So uh, we'll see how it goes going forward. But when you look at the history of the program, you realize they've got the highest winning percentage. Mm-hmm. in all of college football since 1945. Yeah, and they have and they, they, they have. Um, there's another record uh, when I was at the College Football Hall of Fame during the Super Bowl down in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And it's Oklahoma, I think, has – they have, like, multiple coaches with over 100 wins. They have, like well, – yes. I, don't, I don't know how – but they have they have the most. They have the most coaches with 100 um, – with over 100 wins. Yeah, no, we'll talk a little bit about Coach Wilkerson and, and uh, obviously Coach Switzer and Coach Fairbanks. It's a great lineage and a great history there. It's seven national championships, 48 conference championships, 162 first-team All-Americans, seven Heisman Trophy winners, um, 23 members into the <laughs> College Football yep, Hall of Fame. Yep. Five coaches, 18 players, and uh, they've got the longest record, the longest winning streak in Division One history with 47 straights. The only program that has had four 100-plus win um, so you, you, when you have that type of success, it kind of shows that, hey, the program's even bigger than the coach. But you go back in its early history, and they started football at Oklahoma before Oklahoma was named a state, before they got statehood. That's that's kind of rare. <laughs> it was organized by a guy by the name of John Hartz, who was a student from Kansas. The first ever game was played on low prairie grass just outside of – Holmberg Hall, which if you've been on that campus, um, it was interesting because I love looking at the research of when it first started, Scott. There were so many injuries in that first game. They had to borrow players from the other team to finish. Uh, So I did think that these things are really fun. Uh, They they had their first coach, um, was a language professor in um, Coach Parrington, who played some football at Harvard, and he – went ahead and coached the team and then he it started to interfere with his studies and he was working on a Pulitzer Prize which he won 
um, in at, uh, at the University of Washington um, as a teacher. So they moved on. They get Fred Roberts. Uh, it was the first real coach. Then the then the after ten years of football, they started to get serious. They hired Benny Owen. That's where Owen Field is named after. He was the coach from 1905 to 1926. Um, they he was a former quarterback of the undefeated Kansas team of 1899 who was led by the famous coach Fielding Hills. It's all part of Michigan's history. We talked about that. So they go on and he has a great, you know, success, low budget. They would play on the road and Scott, they go and they play, you know, Kansas one day. And then two days later play Missouri. They, it's, it was that, that's, it was like baseball. Like playing, playing. Yeah, it's exactly right. Then that time between Owen and Bud Wilkinson was 27 to 47. It was a little bit of nomad and area. Adrian Lindsay came in as the coach. Um, You know, then Lewis Hardage came in from Vanderbilt. And then Biff Jones came in and did a nice job. Biff Jones had a history um, from Army and then was the head coach of LSU back in the day. And he coached around the time of – the Dust Bowl, and they're, they're great stories about how they practice and you couldn't even see because the dust was so bad and on the prairies. And, you know, so they really started to kind of build some things then. But, the you know, and then when they hired Jim Tatum, Jim Tatum brought with him an assistant coach by the name of Bud Wilkerson who played at the University of Minnesota. And uh, the board was so impressed with Wilkerson that they considered hiring him for the head coaching position. But they thought ethically that Tatum, who was brought in, that that's who they were going to hire. Well, Tatum left after one season to go to Maryland. So they promoted Bud Wilkerson, and that's when things – that's the first big, great era of Bud Wilkerson, who was just renowned there. The 49 team went unbeaten, um, and it began – you know, he had the first Heisman Trophy winner in Billy Vessels, and, you know, um, they had the, the national championships in 55 and 56. This is all part of their 47-game consecutive winning streak. Uh, it was just unbelievable. They they The best teams came in the first 11 years when he was there. He won 90% of his games, 114-10 and three. He left Oklahoma after the 1963 season with a 145-29 and four record, 14 conference titles, a 123 straight games without being shut out. Uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, had the first black player that came in under his tenure uh, before integration around the country. And so Bud Wilkerson obviously kind of stands alone at Oklahoma. Uh, and then his assistant, Gomer Jones, was promoted to replace him. And things didn't go as well as often is the case. But then they're uh, following Jones's uh, 9-11 record. They brought in a young assistant coach named Jim McKenzie. He was a more physical guy. And then they wanted to make a move. He died of a heart attack. Um, and, and it was was a tough time. So they brought in a young coach who after the 64 season, Chuck Fairbanks, who's coached the Patriots, but coached to Colorado, uh, coached at Oklahoma, which we'll get to, but he was an assistant at Houston at the time. He was offered a job at Tennessee. He wanted to accept it, but in the middle of the summer, uh, it was a little bit late. So he decided to stay at Houston after the next season, he was offered a a position on McKenzie staff and, after the 65 season, uh, Fairbanks was offered the job at Missouri, 
uh, with the idea that he would be an assistant and be the head coach within four years. He declined that to stay at Oklahoma. Well, four months later, Coach McKenzie died, and Fairbanks was named the coach. And boy, did he do a tremendous job. Um, they, they, the early start was a little bit inconsistent, but this is when he started to recruit and develop the Steve Owenses of the world. And he brought in a, an offensive coordinator by the name of Barry Switzer. Um, yeah, we know of, that guy. Uh, uh, Arkansas staff. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, they, they had did a great job and, uh, in running, putting in this wishbone and, uh, Mac Jack Mildren and Greg Pruitt, uh-huh. uh, average 44 points a game. were just unbelievable. And then, but didn't they, I remember, you know, and this is of course, you know, I obviously didn't watch this error, but you know, my father would tell me when they installed the wishbone offense, didn't they, they had multiple thousand yard rushers, correct? Correct. Yes. I mean, they had backs and and this time there was no scholarship limit. So, I mean, you had backs coming out the wazoo. I mean, you had, you know, uh, three backs that would average over 120 yards a game, (laughs) all thousand yard rushers in a 10 game season. You had, I mean, there's stories. I mean, you know, backs like Marcus Dupree and guys like that, they would come in as freshmen and it's same with Texas and Alabama. They would be like ninth string, and they would go from like ninth string to fifth string to like you know by the time the end of the fall practice uh, to begin the season, they'd be the number one guy. I mean, but they kind of that's kind of how it always played out. But oh, it was you know backs and backs and more backs. Can you imagine the big time programs like this that were featuring running backs? They used so many of them, and it, they just pounded them and just figured out who was the best once they got them on campus. Yeah, and we see the wishbone. The wishbone doesn't really exist anymore. Um, you know, the Green Bay Packers ran it to an extent uh, a couple of times in recent years. Um, but what we see kind of being built out of this, if you're looking for like a modern day version, is sort of what you see in the offense from Navy and in from Army, the triple and Georgia Tech at a time for a time, the triple option, which a lot of to the time comes out of a wishbone formation. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. That's the closest uh, assimilation to it. And, you know, Barry was skilled in it. That was a big part of how things were done at that time. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that were were involved in running those type of offenses in the day. In fact, it was just something that was done. Bear Bryant, um, you know, went to Texas and studied what they did and brought it over to Alabama. So this was something that was pretty commonplace. And, you know, kind of the rack up uh, the, the, the Fairbanks era you know, I think to this day, I I still put it amongst the the best games I've ever seen, and and it, it still might be one. I mean, the college games, but I can remember it like yesterday. It was November twenty uh, fifth, the Friday after Thanksgiving, nineteen seventy one, and Nebraska beat Oklahoma. It was one versus two in um in um in in in, the, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. 35-31, and Johnny Rogers with the the punt return for a touchdown. So it was kind of billed as the game of the century, and, of course, we have a lot of those <laughs> now. But it was a great game, and, of course, Fairbanks closed out his career. The following year, he won the Sugar Bowl against Penn State, and um, and, he, and he goes and accepts a position with the New England Patriots. So Barry Switzer is promoted. Um, and then there's some probation issues that took place, and, we kind of think that that may be what led to Fairbanks leaving, kind of like 
Pete Carroll leaving yep. USC to go to mm-hmm. the Seahawks, kind of that t- same type of situation. So there was a little bit forfeiture of, of nine of those games in the 72 season. But Switzer's teams in the 70s, in 70-year period, went 73-7-2. In 78, Oklahoma got their third Heisman Trophy winner, Billy Sims. Um, in 78 season, they were ranked third in uh, in yards per attempt with seven Point four yards a carry, and they had Greg Pruitt and Marcus Dupree, and there's this unbelievable group there. Now, I, they had a great run into the uh, throughout the 70s. The early 80s, they slipped a little bit, lost four games in 81 and 82 and 83, and it was thought that maybe or he had lost it. And, and probably in this day and age, he may have even lost his job. But he changed things around a little bit in 84, um, they got the Buster Rhymes at receiver, Spencer Tillman at running back, got a couple of big war daddies on defense led by Tony Casillas. Then over the next three years, they just got better and better. And they only, they went 11 and one each year, all losses to Miami mm-hmm. and, the, the, and including the yep. national championship in 85. And well, then Jimmy Johnson 80, won for two. What do you, what can you say? Yeah, yep. that's exactly right. <laughs> he got him there and then he was able, Jimmy was able to pay him back with a pretty good cowboy team down the, the stretch. But in 88, was when it just just it went all heck in a handbasket for Barry. That's when they had, we just talked about off the field issues, but man, they had a shooting and a rape in the athletic dorm. Um, Switcher's house was robbed by one of the players. They One of the players were caught selling drugs to an undercover agent. I mean, it was just a mess. They promoted, uh, as he kind of stepped aside, longtime defense coordinator Gary Gibbs gets promoted. Uh, that you know, was moderately successful for a couple of years. Then it moved on. They brought in Howard Schnellenberger and Schnellenberger was 61 and, you know, had a history and turnabout Louisville and of course the USFL. And he comes in and he's speaking of, you know, what he's going to do and rewrite Oklahoma history. And he spent a year there and it, he never talk about an ill fit there. He resigned after a year. He let him. He he did a videotape message to to step aside. So anyway, they ended ended up replacing him with John Blake, who was a really good recruiter, but notorious in terms of how he recruited, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And had some talent. Was not a very good coach, and it really started to go bad. And then it was interesting. Is Joe Castiglione, the athletic director? hires a 38-year-old defensive coordinator from Florida by the name of Bob Stoops. Uh, it was a you know, a job that was obviously highly thought of, uh, but to hire him was a little bit surprising. You're talking about an Ohio guy. Um, was that Florida? Um, Bob actually was interested at the same time at going back to his alma mater, Iowa. Iowa hired Kurt Ferentz. Um, Bob told me himself that Iowa never offered him the job, and had they offered him the job, he would have taken, taken it. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob told me that himself. So, but it just for whatever reason, and Kurt, Kurt's done a phenomenal job there, and, and and obviously Bob did a great job. So we all know that he, he did a really good job. Inherited a team with some good talent. You remember that first year they go to the Independence Bowl. It's the second year they win the national championship, beating a more talented Florida State team. But that's where things kind of thought, hey, Bob is going to be this big, you know, big time winner, hey, big game Bob, because then he beat Texas seemingly every year. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he had a lot of success. 
was in the championship hunt, you know, quite a few times, you know, was not able to, to win it uh, like he had uh, did in that second year. But really successful program, great players, and Jason White and Adrian Peterson and Josh Sam Heupel. Bradford, Josh Heupel. Mm-hmm. I mean, on and on and on, Landry Jones. I mean, now the latter part of the, the Stoops era wasn't quite as good. The thing that Bob always did, it was a defensive coach, but he brought in Leach to help run the offense at the earliest age. Then he brought Mangino in, and Mangino did a good job, took the Kansas job, did a nice job. Then he goes out and he, after missing a little bit, uh, misfiring a little bit on offense, goes and targets Lincoln Riley, who a lot of us thought was a rising star when he was at East Carolina, and he brings him in. And as you mentioned, Bob, a lot of people thought, stepped aside late in that process, and he said he did it because he wasn't sure that he wasn't going to do it. Some of us think that he did it to preserve the staff and help his staff out uh-huh. and keep them in play and to, to ensure that it – because remember, he did it in the summer. Yes. So they weren't they weren't going to go and – so the staff was in place. They promoted Lincoln. And as we well, said there's earlier, also, I think – There's also <clears> – there's people out there that think that, you know, Lincoln Riley was Bob Stoops' hand-picked guy. And by by stepping away when he did – the only move they had, he ensured that Lincoln <coughs> Riley was going to precede him because if he had stepped away at the end of a season, there might have been a coaching search. There might have been a, a situation where Lincoln Riley does not get that job. And so to ensure that Lincoln Riley was the guy to take over for him, he stepped away when he did, where the only move was to promote their offensive coordinator. Well, it's correct. And, you know, I think that may be where Joe Castiglione may have wanted to go anyway. But uh-huh. the outside pressure of the alumni, hey, this is Oklahoma. You need yeah, to what open if there's up a big, you know, and, 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 and if he steps away at the end of the season, you don't know what other coaches are available. There could be a right. bigger name, right. maybe an NFL coach that just got fired or and there's there's a lot of ways that people can go. But I'm just saying what, he made a move to guarantee Lincoln Riley was taking over for him. And and his staff, including yes. his brother, who's no longer there, has been yeah. let go. Well, but we know what happened that there. Sta- yeah. that the staff was important to him, and Bob wanted to step out on his own terms. And um, I truly believe that if if uh, that if he was going to step aside, that's when he was going to do it to preserve that to give them that chance. And let's call it like it is; it's worked pretty well. Oh yeah. Uh, now now Lincoln has made some changes on his staff. But and I'm very curious to see what Alex Greenwich can do. Alex has done a good job, did a good job at Washington State. Um, you know, can they get off the field a little bit better defensively? We know that they will score points. We know in that league in the Big Twelve they have to score points, but they have to get better defensively if they're going to make some hay in the playoffs and compete for a national title. Uh, they can't be this team that looks like you know, a run-of-the-mill Big 12 team. They have to become, I use the model for Oklahoma of Clemson. Clemson can go up-tempo. Clemson can be very athletic and spread you out on offense, but they got some big-time war daddies on defense, and that's, Oklahoma doesn't have Clemson's talent on defense. They've got to correct that, and then with Alex Greenwich, they've got to do a better job of playing situational defense. Now, the difference is, is, they got to defend that type of offense with everybody in the league. So they got to be prepared for that. But I think they need to be a little bit more physical 
and maybe shorten games. I think Texas is a little bit ahead of Oklahoma defensively with Tom Herman's doing mm-hmm. schematically physicality in the trenches. Um, they tackle a little bit better. So I think this is kind of a pivotal stretch for Oklahoma. They are the bell cow program in the league. Now I know Texas will always say, Oh no, we're always number one. Well, I think Texas is right there. Oklahoma has to tweak, not change, but tweak a little bit of what they do in terms of being explosive, but with more physicality to play at a level that can maybe dominate, not so much in the conference, but out of conference uh, as it relates to the national championship caliber teams. And that's that's reality of, of where I think they are. I think that they're at the very top, but I'm very curious to see what Alex can do with the defense and what Lincoln is willing to do. And I think sometimes you have to take your foot off the gas offense in terms of being up-tempo and maybe playing a little bit more ball control. And maybe they'll do that with Jalen Hurts as quarterback now. Maybe they'll – because Jalen Hurts is a different type of runner than Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray made you miss. Jalen Hurts is 225 pounds of thunder. That's going to rock you up. And so I think they may be a little, maybe they're a little bit more ball control. Maybe they'll be a little bit better defensively. That's what I'm going to be looking for to see whether the Sooners can take that next step. Well, let's talk about before we move on some of the great players. We mentioned a bunch of them uh, that played for Oklahoma. You talk about the the college football hall of famers. I mean, we, we went this whole time. We didn't even mention the boss. You know, <laughs> Brian Bosworth was a rock star. <laughs> Oklahoma, not just a great player, not just a college football hall of famer, but a rock star, the boss. I mean, come on. Well, he certainly was. And he was controversial. He certainly at, at, at college, um, you know, in, in that he's not only a really good player, but he was a guy that, uh, you know, got very involved in his fight against the NCAA and all mm-hmm. that. So he made a lot of noise there. A noise there. I, I can remember Steve Owens. I, I thought Steve Owens was was a great, great player. Now Billy Vessels was, you know, maybe the best halfback. But I, I think great running backs. I think Billy Vessels, Steve Owens, Greg Pruitt, Billy Sims, yep. Adrian Peterson. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just had a whole lot of um, Joe Washington who never got, you know, that, that, you know, talk about, you know, he, he was just a lot of great ones. Um, the quarterbacks more recently, Kyler and Baker and Bradford, Jason White and Heupel. But, you know, a lot of it was the fact that they ran the wishbone for, they weren't really passing the football for a long time. But, you know, we lost uh, the great Tommy McDonald, who uh, was a real character, was a great player for the Eagles. And he was a great uh, halfback, you know, for for Oklahoma back in the day in the 50s. But Tommy Harris, you mentioned Bosworth, Rocky Kalmus, Teddy Lehman, um, who I know very well, does radio uh, in Norman. Uh, Join him quite a bit. Uh, Roy Williams and Ricky Dixon and Derek Strait in the secondary. Um, And just just a whole lot of guys. Now, back when they were really great, you know, under under Switzer, I mean, they, they were known for that offense. But, boy, there were some guys on that defense that were really, really good. George Cumby and Daryl Hunt and Carl McAdams and Rod Choate. And as I mentioned, Derek Strait and Ricky Dixon. And they just – they had some guys that could really rock you and really play. Um, In terms of talent, they can recruit very well because they recruit Texas so well. 
They have, uh, you know, an iconic, you know, um, image in terms of football uh, and and certainly of of great talent. And again, you start stacking up the best programs in the country. You can sit there and argue all day. Historically, you can look at Notre Dame, Alabama, USC's Oklahoma is in that Ohio State. Oklahoma is in that very, very short conversation. You don't get out of your 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 one hand before you say Oklahoma. They are an iconic brand of college football, no doubt. That was our state of the program on the Oklahoma Sooners. Next week on Rush the Field, we will get into the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, Chris, it's an in, it, it's a busy time. Like we say, there's so much going on, and in order to stay on top of everything that's going on. Our listeners have to go to LandryFootball.com. You go step-by-step through the free agent, the draft process. you got to learn what NFL teams and college programs already know. Just join LandryFootball.com. It's less than a magazine subscription. You get access to all of the information from Chris Landry, everything that he is providing for these teams, these programs, the latest inside scoop on college and the pro game, the draft boards, which is so important. Now the NFL draft is right here. And then, of course, we're going to be evaluating all of the college teams as we head into the offseason Football OTAs are getting underway in the NFL. All this information and more at LandryFootball.com, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Our notebooks, our draft notebooks, our college football notebooks, our NFL notebooks daily. What's going on around the game uh, inside the walls of the programs, as you mentioned. Uh, We've got our free agent board still up, obviously, by position, how the players have graded. Who's still out there? Uh, How do they grade this past year? Really important to know. Uh, and then, of course, the draft boards um, with the scouting reports like they are read inside a draft room. Uh, you'll see the draft boards, how a draft board really looks and how the players stack up, where the value is, where the cutoff points are. So a lot of great information there. It never stops. It's from recruiting to the draft to free agency. We've got it all for you at LandryFootball.com. It's a great podcast like this one that will keep you up to date on everything. So check it out. We've got our scouting season special that will take you through the rest of this offseason into next season. Uh, but you you can't uh, you can't miss, afford to miss, the whole draft boards and the whole process of evaluating players will take you inside the team's war rooms uh, with a with an inside the, the draft room look at each and every NFL team, what their thought process is going on, uh, what their needs are post-early stages of free agency. So, listen, it's one-stop shopping football. If you like football, you'll simply love LandryFootball.com. Be sure to follow Chris on Twitter at LandryFootball. Follow me, Scott Seidenberg, at Scott's on Air. Rush the Field can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and Radio Info. Until next week, Chris. Hey, look forward to it. In this week's episode of Crush Performance, it's one of our favorite episodes of the year. As Major League Baseball is underway, we're talking baseball. We're going to break down some of the new rule changes with Crush favorite Alan Mitchell, a.k.a. Low Tide, one of our favorite sports personalities. We're going to look at the incredible stats and numbers from 2018. We'll also lay out our annual list of team stories and players to watch this year. And we'll make our 2019 predictions for which team will claim World Series supremacy. All this week on Crush Performance. 
Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. If you're a serious athlete, a weekend warrior, parent, or coach, join us each week as we investigate the latest trends and research coming out of the sport performance world. We'll visit with top athletes, coaches, and sports scientists to keep you on the cutting edge and to find out what it truly takes to achieve human maximum performance. You can visit us online at CrushPerformance.com and Crush Performance Radio with me, Jeff Kershell, can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at Radio Influence.